Welcome to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. This week, Philip Edwards teaches us how we can live continually in the presence of God as we move into his throne room. We hope you've enjoyed the Tabernacle module and please head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can sign up to future modules. Thank you very much and we hope you enjoy today's teaching. This is a scary one. Um, so I'm going to pray <laughs> for all of us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being born again of the Spirit of God, for knowing Jesus Christ as our Saviour and our friend. Father, we thank you for the abiding presence of your Holy Spirit within us to guide us and to lead us into all truth. Father, we are a little bit apprehensive as we approach this subject tonight because we're getting very close to you. And Lord, we want to handle this carefully and with reverence. And Lord, we want you to talk into our hearts. We want you to anoint people's ears as they listen and uh, Anoint my lips, Lord, as I speak, and my mind as we go through this. We are thoroughly, totally dependent upon you, Lord, for everything in our lives. Bless us, Lord, this evening, we pray, as we gather to listen and to hear and to understand more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Woo. Okay, yep. Well, we've arrived. Uh, It's been a journey for us, and of course in the reality for many of you, it's been uh, a physical, real journey. Uh, Although we're looking at it uh, from a scriptural point of view and from uh, an understanding point of view, you know of all the things that Uh, I've spoken about so far. You might not have been able to articulate them or to write them down, but the things that I've spoken about, you've known some of these things, they're real to you. We've arrived at the third curtain, the third doorway. Uh, We often talk about the veil being opened for us, but there were three veils and we've come through the first one, which was into the outer court we've gone in through the second one which took us into where jesus said i am the truth and we've opened ourselves up to the holy spirit and brought our our soul as it were into line with god our mind our will and our emotion and now we move into the holiest of holies here we move from the area of the soul into the spirit your spirit has been made alive by God through faith in Jesus Christ and your spirit that part that inner part of you is there to communicate with God and receive from God it has no other function within you as far as this teaching goes you have a human spirit like everyone has a human spirit but within you there is a part of the spirit which has been made alive by God and the minute we turn away from God, that spirit 
darkens, it closes down. So it's only active as we're in relationship with God, either giving to God or receiving from God. The desire of God is that our spirit constantly remains open to him, constantly receiving from him and giving to him. We don't get there in a few minutes. It takes some practice. And we mentioned a few times already to practice his presence, to learn what it is to live in fellowship with God continually in our life. In the Old Testament, to go into the holiest of holies, that was only permissible for one person once a year. And that was the high priest. He would go in and he would make atonement for the sins of the people that they committed in ignorance. As they committed sins, generally in life, they would take their sacrifices or their lambs or whatever it was, and the priests would slaughter them, kill them, and their sins would be atoned for, covered. But many things that they did, they didn't realize they were doing wrong. So for God to put them in good standing with him, they had to, the priest had to go once a year and make atonement for all those other sins that weren't covered. I feel sorry for the priest. He had to be perfect in his life. He had to do it all right, just the way that God had laid down in Scripture. A very high calling on the priest to live like that. He would go in once a year and he would take with him a censer and it would be filled with uh, the, uh, the fragrant things that were burning on the golden altar. So it was sweet smelling. He was going to take that into the very presence of God. He would take a bowl with blood and some hyssop and he would use this as he went into that holy place and he would strike on the floor seven stripes of blood on the floor and when he got to the ark and the mercy seat that was in there he would strike blood on the side of the mercy seat it's interesting as you look to the new testament there are seven references to what the blood of jesus accomplishes for us seven stripes on the floor and seven things that the blood accomplishes for us through the blood of Jesus I am redeemed out of the hands of the devil it says in Ephesians 1 and 7 through the blood of Jesus all my sins are forgiven it says in 1 John 1 9 through the blood of Jesus I am continually being cleansed from all sin 1 John 1 7 through the blood of Jesus I am justified I am made righteous just as if I'd never sinned Romans 5 and 9, through the blood of Jesus I am sanctified, made holy, set apart to God. Hebrews 13, 12, through the blood of Jesus I have boldness to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews 10 and 19, and the blood of Jesus carries out continue, sorry, cries out continually to God in heaven on my behalf. Hebrews 12 and 24. And that eighth one, through the blood of Jesus we overcome Satan when we testify personally to what the Word of God says the blood of Jesus does for us we overcome him 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We testify for what the blood of Jesus has done for us. There's a sort of, I grew up in Pentecostal church and people are always talking about the blood or claiming the blood or pleading the blood. And of course, as a little boy growing up, that was, I didn't know quite what that meant. And then I heard people saying it and I still didn't know what it meant. But it means that the blood of Jesus, if we testify to what the blood of Jesus has done for us, it gives us victory and triumph in our lives. So the priest would mark the four seven times and then he would mark the mercy seat. Today we enter into the Holy of Holies with worship. I'll say this right at the start, that has nothing to do with singing. Sometimes when we read words or we hear things, that what we speak isn't always the same as what we read in Scripture. So it's lovely to sing and it's lovely for our spirits to be uh, in harmony with singing to God. That is a wonderful thing. But worship is not that. Until we learn to worship God, we are confined to the realm of the soul, to the holy place, and not the holy of holies. See, first we were what could be termed carnal Christians. We lived in the outer court. We lived by our sense knowledge. We read the word of God with our sense knowledge. And then we moved in a little further into the holy place, and we were shown things by the revelation of the Spirit. We're called soulish Christians in that place. We want to move now into where life itself is, into the Holy of Holies, where we are spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-believers, where our spirit is in one with God. We worship we worship by making ourselves an offering. Your body, your mind, your soul, every part of you, you bring to God and you give it to him. You give him everything that is worship. You do what you were created to do. We're told that the trees worship the Lord. You're thinking, my Lord, how do trees worship the Lord? They do what they were created to do, to bear fruit or to give shade or whatever to do, oxygenize the atmosphere. If they do that, they are worshiping God because they are doing what they were created to do. For us to worship God, we must live and do what we were created to do. When we're not doing that, we're not worshiping. And God is jealous for us. He wants us. He wants us to live with all the giftings and the grace and the power of the Spirit that we have in this world, living in a way that we worship God, living in the way that we were created to. I present my body as a living sacrifice, which is my spiritual act of worship. Okay, inside the Holy of Holies, uh, 
we see two pieces of furniture. We see the ark, and above the ark is placed the mercy seat, a slab of gold, really, with two angels from beaten gold that were across the mercy seat. I don't know if this is true, but somebody said when uh, Moses went up and was in the presence of God, and uh, he saw the throne of God, he saw two angels and not three, because one had been cast out, remember? And so there were just two angels now, and not three, that covered the throne. And so that's the image that he created there. That's what God had shown him to do. The ark then, and the mercy seat. In here, we will examine tonight the three activities of the Spirit. The three activities of the Spirit here are worship, fellowship, and revelation. Remember in the holy place, we looked at our, our mind, our will, and our emotion. In the holy place now where we've come, where we've entered into, the three activities are worship, fellowship, and revelation. All activities of the Spirit have meaning only in the relationship we have with God himself. Sometimes people buy things. I remember a man once, he bought a television to show videos. Uh, one of the, in the early days of showing videos. And he only wanted to show Christian ones on this video player. It was one of these international ones. And so he wouldn't let his children watch anything else on this video player but Christian ones. It was like dedicated to the Lord. I used to grow up and go to church and wear special clothes on Sunday. And the first thing I had to do when I got home was run upstairs and take them all off and put them all away. And they wouldn't come out again until next week. We don't do that sort of thing now so much, do we? But it was like... They were dedicated to the Lord, you understand? It was the Lord's. And Sunday was dedicated to the Lord, whether it was right or wrong or religious, I don't know, but we couldn't play football and we couldn't eat sweets. We couldn't watch the television, but we could put the radio on. I didn't get that one. I uh, didn't understand it at all. Couldn't go out in the backyard and play, but we could play Monopoly indoors. Didn't get that either. But the whole day was full of church and full of Sunday school and more church and more church. And it's as though it was dedicated to God. We've lost something of that. See, I understand what dedicated to God means. Our spirits are dedicated to God. If they're not in fellowship or communion with God, they shut down because they're only used for that. Turn you to a passage in Matthew 7. Jesus speaking. Uh, this, I've heard lots of interpretations of what this would mean. This is mine. I'm not saying the others are wrong or other things that you're wrong. You just add all the knowledge you have and you'll come up with something comfortable yourself. Matthew 7, 22 and 23 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, 
I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus is talking about people who would come after him. He was talking about Christians, I believe, because they say, Lord, Lord. If, if Jesus is your Lord, then you are born again. You can't call him your Lord if he's not your Lord. So he's talking to Christians here. And he says that you might prophesy in my name and drive out demons and perform many miracles. But there might be something lacking here. And I'll tell you plainly, I don't like this. The thing that strikes me about it is that this prophesying and performing miracles and driving out demons is not something we do from the realm of the spirit. We do it from the realm of the soul. See, these things, these miraculous things uh, operating in the spirit is something that comes from the soul area from the mind and the will and the emotion, as the Holy Spirit gives us stuff, we can minister it out here. So it's a soulish activity. It's spiritual and it's powerful, but it operates through the soul of a man. So you can operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but your spirit, that spirit part of you, is shut down to God. It isn't open to God in relationship and fellowship and worship. It isn't open to him at all. And we think we'll get many rewards for maybe these things. He won't reward us for giftings. See, if you can do deliverance or preach or uh, do miracles, prophesy, they're giftings. How can there be a reward for a gift? It doesn't make sense. If I gift you with something, I can't then gain a, give you a reward that you've got this thing because it's a gift. But what we get rewarded for is whether we've brought our heart, our spirit, the inner core of ourselves, and presented it to God in worship. He's indicating here, I believe, that you might do lots of things with the power of the giftings that you have. But listen, if you don't love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, we haven't cut it. And that's borne out in 1 Corinthians, isn't it? It says, you could operate by all the gifts and give your body even to be burned. But if you don't function with love, Love for me, first of all. If you don't function, then it's nothing. It counts as nothing. So what we're driving at tonight has gone beyond the soul, beyond doing the miraculous, beyond the prophesying and the healing and all. It's gone beyond that into the very center and heart of what Christianity is all about, living in relationship with God, spirit to spirit constantly every second of our life Jesus is the way the truth but now we enter into the life that he's called us to you know God loves us so much he is so jealous he loves 
everything about us. And he is so jealous. If anyone ever looks at us, he's jealous. He'd be on them like a ton of bricks. Don't you touch my children. And we keep ourselves faithful to him. There's another illustration of that found in the Old Testament. It was about the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Uh, they shouldn't have never been in the wilderness, should they? The wilderness wasn't a plan. It was the result of a lack of faith. It wasn't, I will take them through the wilderness. It's, will you go into the promised land? And the answer was no. And then you'll go in the wilderness then because that's the alternative of promised land experience. It says this in Psalm 95, 7 to 11. Today, if you hear my voice, this is God speaking. He says, do not harden your hearts, talking to the children of Israel, as you did in Miribah, as you did the day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I had done. They had seen the miracles. They had been delivered their fathers had delivered from Egypt. They had seen all of these things. They had seen the miraculous hand of God. And yet they turned against God. They didn't trust him. For 40 years, he said, I was angry with that generation. I've pondered that word a few times. To have God angry with you for 40 years. And in the 40 years of his anger with his children, he fed them, he gave them water, he clothed them, he put shoes on their feet, he protected them, and he watched over them the whole time. See, we might in interpret that, if that was in our life, as the blessing of God. No, no, he was just conducting the responsibilities of a father to his children. But he was angry with them all the time because they wouldn't trust him. They wouldn't put their faith in him. They wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't believe him. They didn't want to open up themselves to God. They're people whose hearts go astray. You understand? Just like the passage where Jesus was talking to those people that were performing miracles, they were performing the miracles, they were surviving and doing well in the Christian sphere, but their hearts had gone astray, just like these people. Be careful, be careful. We think by doing, that's what God wants. He doesn't not want it, but what he wants more is that your heart doesn't go astray in the doing that you turn away from the living God and not give him your heart. Their hearts have gone astray and they have not known my ways. You see, when you're not in tune with God, spirit to spirit, we don't know what he's doing. People throw their hands up in despair and say, what's God doing? Well, don't admit that your spirit has been shut down to God. Don't do that. Open yourself up to him. Listen to him. Spend time with him. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. 
God wants you to enter into his rest. It is a state where our spirits are in tune with the Spirit of God and we're in constant fellowship and worship and he is constantly speaking to us so we're at rest. You could be in the middle of a storm and be at rest. Everything could be falling down around your ears, but because of your spirit-to-spirit relationship with God, you are at rest. Jesus slept in the back of a boat when it was going down and they were screaming their heads off because he was one with his Father. He was at rest. (laughs) The poor disciples. He didn't rebuke them, you know. He did say, there's a lack of, lack of faith here, but he wasn't hard on them. He knew how, how much they needed to grow. He knew they needed the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. I know they had a special anointing on them, but if he rebuked anything, he rebuked the storm or he rebuked the spirit that was behind the storm, causing that to happen. He didn't rebuke them. He understood them and he loved them. He didn't expect them to be asleep as well, don't worry. He knows where we are and he lovingly raises us up. They broke spirit with God. Just like those people who did all those miracles, they broke spirit with God. These people broke their spirit with God. It was separated from God. And in the separation, there was darkness. All the people in the wilderness could do was moan and grumble and complain day after day after day it's very wearing you know and I give full credit to Moses because God's had enough Uh, so think of poor old Moses I mean he was taking all the time all this grumbling and complaining but God was even fed up with it and God says I've had enough now I'm finishing here, we're taking them all out, we'll start again. And Moses says, no, God, you can't do this. There's two lovely little illustrations in the Old Testament where God calls two people his friend. Moses was his friend and Abraham was his friend. And on both occasions, when he's deciding to do something, he says, "Mm, I better go talk this over with my friend. I love that. And so he goes to Moses and he chats this thing over with him about wiping all the Israelites out. And of course, he talks him out of it. And that occasion when he was going to destroy Sodom he had heard about how bad it was and he said I better check with my friend if it's all right and he talks to Abraham remember and Abraham brings him down from 50 down to 10 righteous and because he was in covenant with these people he was in covenant with Moses he was in covenant with Abraham he was going to watch over their interests they had almost an equal say in what God wanted to do now how can you have an equal say with God because God sometimes raises us up to a position and he asks us our opinion because we're his friends now are we a friend of God in John 13 14 15 where they're sitting in the room before you know the last supper evening he says it to them three times I call you friends 
I call you friends. I call you friends. See, as a friend of God, if we do what it says there, we become a friend of God and he chats things over with us. Isn't that interesting? See, that spirit-to-spirit relationship that we find in the Holy of Holies. Of the time, most people don't want to talk to God. They simply keep petitioning him for more and more and more and more and more and more. I don't know which is worse, grumbling and complaining or constant petition. Both wear God down. I have a feeling. If we turn to Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5. I think they were born-again believers in the early church. I believe they would have been spirit-filled. But they had something wrong with them, didn't they? They wanted notoriety. They wanted to be noticed and seen. And so when they saw Barnabas giving money to the church and the church praising them, they thought, we'll do this. We'll sell a plot of land and we'll make out as though we've given everything to the church when actually we'll keep back a lot of it. And they were deceiving and lying. They had broken their spiritual connection with God sin does that it says Peter said to Ananias in Acts 5 and 3 how is it that Satan has filled your heart how is it well they'd let him because they had broken their spiritual connection their hearts had become darkened You can shut your spirit down any minute of the day. Did you know that? You keep it open. You, go, you must explain this to me. Well, I do a good course on practicing the presence, so we'll get there eventually if you stick the course out long enough. <laughs> See, you can get up in the morning and pray and talk to God and then crack on. You don't give them another thought all through the day. Just get on with life. Get, get on with what you're doing. Get on with your job. Get on with everything. And then the last thing at night, you say, I got it, it's me again. Just to say thanks and let me give you another list. And God says, where you been? See, if you do that, your spirit becomes darkened because there's no contact. There has to be the continual contact between you and God. You go, well, how do we do this? Well, we have to practice his presence. When we practice the presence of God, our spirit is open all the time to receive from him, to walk before him, to fellowship with him, to worship him by giving him all of ourselves. Your spirit has been made alive to worship, to fellowship, and to receive revelation from God. Let's look at the ark a little bit more. There's two arks in the Bible, aren't there? There's the big one and the little one. 
the big one is Noah's Ark. Uh, the little one is Moses' Ark. The big one, we call that the Great Ark, that's a type of Jesus too. Well, we've all had that joke about, you know, the Sunday school child and said, what's the answer? And he wasn't really listening to the question and he thought, well, it's always Jesus. So he just said Jesus and nine times out of 10, you're right. If you just say the answer is Jesus. Well, the ark is a type of Jesus, a type of Jesus. How is it? Well, Jesus has come, come into me. So we enter into Christ like entering into the ark. Then God shuts the door and seals the ark with us on the inside. And then the waters come and the waters separate us from the earth. And everything that's ungodly in the world, that's our baptism. We enter into Christ, God seals us in Christ, and then we're baptized in water, which separates us from the world. The Red Sea separated the people of God from the Egyptians. The Jordan separated the people of God from the wilderness. Baptism separates us from the world. So the ark is a type of Jesus entering into Jesus. So what is the little ark then? Well, it's Jesus entering into us. The big ark is we enter into Jesus. The little ark is that Jesus enters into us. He enters into the Spirit. It's Christ that comes and lives in the spirit of a man. The core, the very center of his life. The wellspring of life, as it's called. Colossians 1.27 it says to them, that's to you, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For you to be glorified, Christ has come into you, that your life can be glorious in his presence. God has set Christ in the inside of you, in your spirit. It says in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ himself lives on the inside of me. This ark was made of uh, acacia wood. Think about acacia wood, it's incorruptible. Can't be destroyed. It just lasts forever and ever and ever and the ark made of wood acacia wood covered with gold on the inside and without so it speaks of the humanity of christ and the divinity of christ a perfect combination of true humanity and true divinity christ was a perfect true humanity and true divinity now listen to me carefully you are not divine but the divine one has entered into the inside of you. You are not like your neighbors. Let me tell you this. You have the divine in you. Christ has entered into your very spirit and it's Christ who dwells in you. That's why the world doesn't understand us. 
And the more we live out of the Spirit, more and more they don't understand us. And Jesus said, listen, if you live more and more out of the Spirit, you will be persecuted in the same way I'm persecuted. But we try to get on so well with the world, don't we? We even try and present church to them that is not offensive. And somehow, if we just snook around and we looked a bit like them and we sounded like them, then more would come. No, they might at first, until they moved on and found, you're all weird, you're all different from us, you're so strange, the way you live and act and talk and think. Unfortunately, unsafe people can be very comfortable in church because there's not such a big difference. I don't want to be like the world. I don't want to appeal, as it were. I want to present something different. And so they come and say, I've been looking for something different and I've found it here. I tried all those other things, but they didn't work. Christ was humanity and divinity. So close, so tight. And so he has entered into us. There were three items that were put in the box, in the ark. There was a golden jar and in it was manna. You know, the manna was the food that they found every morning in the wilderness and they were able to eat it like a, it's like a, a, a wafer, uh, white wafery stuff and sweet, I think, and nice to eat. There was Aaron's rod, that rod that uh, we're going to read about later. It sort of budded and uh, fruit came on it although it was a dead old stick and there were the stone tablets of the covenant these were the three objects that were put inside the ark when it was uh, in the tabernacle i say when it was in the tabernacle because when the tabernacle had finished its purpose there was the temple the temple replaced the tabernacle we said there was solomon's temple and there was herod's temple it was built on the same pattern as the tabernacle, a lot bigger and grander and more solid and permanent. But in the ark, when they had the temple, the only thing in there was the tablets of stone. The other two objects were removed. Only the tablet of stone remained. What's the difference between the tabernacle and the temple? Why didn't God just start with the temple? Why did he have a tabernacle? And why did he have one for four, five, six hundred years? Why did he have that? The tabernacle is a type of the church. In this age, the temple is a type of the church in the next age, in the next world where we live. The tabernacle was like a tent. Put it up, take it down, put it up, take it down. Here one day, gone the next. Sometimes they stayed for a year, sometimes only one or two days and God would move and they would have to pack up and go. I think they got it down to a fine art in the end. Everyone knew which uh, peg to pull up and which rope to take down and what to carry and what to, to do this with. But the tabernacle is a type of the church today. <laughs> We're not permanent, are we? We like spring up and disappear. 
all over the world churches spring up and then they disappear uh, if we just think of HTH I presume that one day it was it was booming as a church in the town and then it goes right down to almost nothing and then it springs up again it's only because it's got a building that it sprung up in the same place if there wasn't a building it would have totally disappeared altogether and sprung up somewhere else in the school or something so the church springs up and it disappears the church in Turkey at one time was so powerful all the major cities had enormous churches and now you go to Turkey you'd be hard-pressed to find I don't know 10,000 Christians probably in the whole place so the church is like that there's nothing permanent about the church don't get caught up in the building God, thank God for buildings thank God for a building at least we're in the warm and it's dry but don't put more on the building than it is simply a building to house the people of God Solomon's temple was the church that's coming in the next world in the next life that church that temple it comes down out of heaven remember but it's not bricks is it and mortar and concrete and cement and doors and gold it's not that it's people it's the millions and millions of Christians that have gone on before it will come down out of heaven and it will be on the earth and all the other Christians on the earth will be part of it and the church then will be solid and visible and it will reign on earth and it will have power and authority it will be a solid thing whereas the church now is a spiritual thing it doesn't have power in the world now it isn't in one location it isn't solid it isn't that at all you go I wish the church was don't wish it anything it is what it is it's a flexible movable thing that is not meant to be solid and to rule the world and have authority and power it's not meant to do that it has spiritual authority and power it's it's as though it's fragile when we look at the material but it's so strong in spirit one day it'll be both strong in spirit and very evident before us established and glorified the contents the tablets of stone what do they represent they represent God's eternal unchanging righteous law there is something in the universe that goes on from eternity to eternity it is the law of God that expresses the very righteousness of God God is full of love yes but he is full of righteousness too there is no shadow of turning with God there is no gray areas God is black and white 
He's very gracious in dealing with us because his love causes him to be like that. But he never moves the line of his righteousness. He never has and he never will. For all eternity, there will be the righteous law of God. God is unchanging. So his law is unchanging. In Psalm 40, speaking of Jesus, Psalm 47 and 8, it says, Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus, when he walked in this earth, had the law of God inside of him. We now, under the new covenant, have the law of God written in our hearts. Yes, you know that scripture. How is it written in our hearts? I tell you what I believe, that Christ has the law in him, in his heart. When I come to faith in Jesus Christ, Christ comes and enters into my heart. So the law is in my heart because Christ is in my heart. I don't have to learn the law of God. I don't have to read it as it were on tablets of stone. I don't have to check it out in my scriptures because the very law of God, which is in the heart of Christ and Christ lives in me, is therefore in my heart. When Christ was on the earth and the law of God was in his heart, he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned ever once. He was perfect. And because he was perfect, he could go back to the Father because he was perfect. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so none of us, none of us can spend eternity with God. Because we're all marred and imperfect. We're all sinners. I don't care how much or little of it you've committed, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We've messed up completely. But Christ, the perfect one, has come to live inside of me through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he who lives in my heart has kept the law of God perfectly. So when God looks at me and he looks into my heart, what does he find? He finds a perfect law keeper. <laughs> so, Philip, you're not a perfect law keeper. No, but Christ is. And so Christ living kept the law for me. Christ kept the law for me. And so he was prepared to come into my heart. So it doesn't matter how many times I've blown it and messed up and sinned and done terrible things. The minute I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the law, the law keeper came into my heart. And when God looks at me, it's as though I'd never sinned because Jesus never sinned. That's a good deal, isn't it? It's a good deal. 
See, this, this salvation is better than you think it is. The law keeper lives inside of me. And when I die, he'll still be living in the inside of me. And as I stand before God, I stand before him with the law keeper on the inside of me who kept the law for me. He kept the law for you. He kept the law for everyone. And if anyone accepts him, he enters in and he says, I will represent this person's heart and I'm perfect. And because of his perfection, it is as though I'd never, ever sinned. I'm completely justified in Christ and I can live with God and enter into heaven with him and relate to him and fellowship with him, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping the law for me because I was going down the swanee very fast. Thank you. See, to live with God, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect. But you can't be. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. Hallelujah. The perfect one dwells on the inside of me. See, we're always trying to bring it back to works, aren't we? You, you feel that? Oh, but, Philip, but I need to repent. I need to try harder. I need to do something. I need to stop doing something. Oh, stop it. Did you realise what God has done for you? He knows how useless you are. And I look at all of you when I say that. He knows how useless we are. And he left, if he left us for one minute, we would miss it completely. And we would be away from him for eternity. That's why he sent Jesus. I don't try and stop sinning. Don't bother. I just love Jesus with all my heart. And I just know he lives on the inside of me. And I just let him live on the inside of me. And if I stumble or fall over or do something stupid, he says, never mind, Phil, I'm here. And I'm the representative of the purity of your heart before the living God. I say, thank you, Jesus. He doesn't even tell me off. He doesn't give me a funny look. I'm passionate. I'm passionate. I would love never to slip again. But I'm just who I am, like you. That doesn't excuse me. It's just the reality. Moses arrives down the mountain, you remember, and he's got the tablets of stone. God has said, listen, when you go down them, they've never had a law before. These are the laws that they must keep to be perfect in my sight. And he puts it number one. We know it, don't we? 
We're to love the Lord our God with everything that we've got and we're not to have any idols or put anything before God at all in our lives. So Moses is coming down now with the tablets of stone and he gets to the bottom of the mountain and what does he see? The first thing he sees is a golden calf. Now you need to read that. He says, hey, Aaron, I left you in charge. He said, I'm sorry, I couldn't stop him. It just, it just happened. It all came together and it became a calf. He goes, what are you talking about? They made that thing. They made it. So he sees before he could even read the law to them so they could live perfect lives, they were breaking it. And they weren't only breaking that one, they were breaking all the others with it as well. And he said he got angry. I think he got angry as God was getting angry. You know, God was demonstrating his anger through him. And he smashes the tablets together and they shatter into bits on the floor. And of course, he does some stuff then, doesn't he? Who's on my side? Who's on the other side? Get your swords on. And he rushes around and kills 3,000 people. judgment of God did you know on the day of Pentecost he saved 3,000 people I think God made up the difference there but he kills he kills these people and he said oh we're so terrible they were always like this pathetic we're so terrible please go back and see if God won't do it again so of course he goes up again and he meets with God and he comes down with the tablets of stone but God has said to him, don't even read the law to them. Take the tablets of stone, go to the Ark of the Covenant, lift up the lid and put the stone of the law under the mercy seat. Under the mercy seat. See, for you to have mercy, you've got to be guilty and we're all guilty. So the law has been placed under the mercy seat and he said listen if anyone ever lifts this seat to find out what's written on these tablets of stone i'll kill him i'll strike him down dead no one must look at the law of god ever isn't that wonderful isn't that wonderful do you get tempted to look at the laws of god and say, oh, 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 I'll just keep that one, or I won't keep that one. You're lucky you're not dead. You're lucky it's an age of grace. Because you can't keep them. You can't keep one of them. Have you ever walked in a park where it says, do not tread on the grass? Have you seen that sign? Yeah? What's the first thing you wanted to do? Tread on the grass. Yeah. We're all the same. As law rears its head, there's something in the fallen nature of man that says, I want to break that one. We're all subject to it. God knows that. I worked on a theory. How to get your children never to tell lies. Do you know why children tell lies? They usually feel intimidated. 
I would tell lies all the time if I thought my dad was going to clip me around the ear. I didn't want to clip around the ear, so I'd think up something quick to get out of the way. We've got to be smarter than that, parents, you see. We trained our children to tell lies. We did. If you think about that one. Anyway, moving on. To open the ark and to read the laws was punishable by death. So from that moment onwards, and we're only in the book of Exodus, no more obeying the law for righteousness sake. No more. From that time forth, no more. How then are we to keep the law of God? You can't. You can't keep God's law. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. Christ living in you and living through you, you'll be able to do a better job without a shadow of a doubt. You will do a better job if Christ is living through you, but you will not keep the law of God. Our only hope <laughs> is that Christ fulfilled the law for us. That's our only hope. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. See, we sin all the time. All the time. Our thoughts, our attitudes, things we say, things we fail to do. Our sins of omission are greater than our sins of commission. That's it. With the law in Christ's heart and Christ in your heart, that's the only way of righteousness. It's the only way. Romans 3 and 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one. It's not possible. As I say, Focus on loving the Lord. Here's a little study for you. Go home and study the life of Peter. And then study the life of Judas. And you'll find there's very little difference between the two of them. It's just scary. Okay. Both were called. Both were anointed by God. They might have both raised the dead, cast out demons, healed the sick, cleansed lepers. They both listened to the devil. They both said what the devil said to them in the face of Jesus. They both denied their Lord. They were pretty similar. But at the end, there's a striking difference between the two of them. And do you know what it is? One of them loved Jesus and the other one didn't. That's it. Judas in his own way was remorseful. He might have even been repentant, but he wasn't 
granted repentance because God could see the heart. You see, we get back to that heart. God could see the heart of Judas and he went and killed himself. But he could see the heart of Peter. And remember what he said to Peter when he met him afterwards? You know what he said? He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? <laughs> he said, you know I love you. Of course I love you. That was the difference between these two men. One loved the Lord Jesus Christ and the other didn't. And because he didn't, his heart was darkened. Because this man did. He was saved. It was different. Just love Jesus. Just love him. Just love him. That's what's so important to the Christian life. The golden jar of manna. This gets a bit tricky. That was all right, that was it? The first one, you got that? That was straightforward enough. Okay, this might get a little bit trickier. Okay, I hope not though. John 6, 48 to 51. It says this, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. So God provided bread for them, they ate it, but they died. So it had no life-giving, eternal life-giver to it. It was just manna that kept them alive while they needed to be alive. He says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. If you eat, you will not die. I drop this in here. When you take communion and you partake of Christ's body by eating the bread, ask your question, does that have some bearing on your resurrection? You say, oh no, Philip, I know that all communion is just symbolic, has no spiritual consequence at all. Oh, I'm not too sure about that. Too sure about that. Moving on quickly. It's just a buy, that one. It says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We're talking about the manna in the jar, you see. We're asking why was it put in the ark? It's a type of the bread that we could eat that will give us eternal life. A few verses later in John 6 and 57, he says, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. He fed on his Father, received from his Father constantly, and the life he lived was the life he got from his Father. We look to Jesus and we feed on Jesus and the life we get from Jesus gives us life. I'll put it like this. 
Jesus said, I have life by my union, my communion, or my fellowship with the Father. I have life in me because of my fellowship and communion with the Father. And the one that believes in me will have life by the union with me as I have union with the Father. And in that union with me, he will feed on me. So Jesus feeds on the Father and we feed on Jesus and the life that went into Jesus from the Father comes into us. I pray that that which I receive from the Father, you will receive the same thing. So we have life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We want the life of God, the Zoe life. We just don't want to breathe every day. We want the life of God in us. And he said, if you feed on me as I feed on the Father, you will have the life of God come into you. And I will be the hidden manner of the heart. So the manner that was in the box reminded them of God's provision to keep them alive but now he says I am the manna I and if I get inside of you and you feed on me you will live eternally with the life of God within you and on that manna he will feed day by day when they went collecting the manna in the wilderness they got one day supply if they got two days supply the second day would go rotten so they had to get up every day every day every day and get it only on the friday in preparation for the sabbath they would get two days we have to feed on jesus every moment of every day see Jesus, when he was on the earth, he was in fellowship with the Father 24 hours a day. <laughs> I have a little chuckle to myself. People teaching on prayer talk about Jesus going off to pray in solitary places, as though he had to. Uh, now, listen, that's my opinion. You understand? I don't want to offend anyone or upset anyone. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. I know they use that to manipulate you to say well if Jesus had to pray you have to pray no Jesus lived in constant communion with the father he fed upon him every day he walked with him he related to him he knew the mind of God and his mind they were in union together he fed upon him he fed upon him and we have to feed upon Christ why would you have to stop and pray if you fed upon Christ. Now I understand we have prayer meetings and we have corporate prayer and we might pray for somebody, I get that. But we don't have to pray, do we? We live a life of constant fellowship and union with Christ all the time. It's, it's a union. He feeds us and we feed him. Our life is worship and fellowship with God and he is speaking by revelation to us. 
Remember when Jesus was at the well and he, he looked a bit tired and exhausted and they said, oh, sit here and um, we'll go off. This was in Samaria, wasn't he? We'll go off and get some grub for you and we'll bring it back. Because he's at the well and along comes the Samaritan woman, remember? And he has this great dialogue with her and she gets excited and she rushes off to the town to tell everyone she's found the Messiah and to bring them all back. And when they return, they thought he had eaten food. Remember? Because he's refreshed and he's bright. He said, listen, I have food you know not of. <laughs> what was the food? He fed upon his father. He fed upon his father. When Moses went up the mountain, did he eat? No. He fed upon God. God sustained him. God sustained him. Now, you say, well, Philip, how long will you go? Well, I could probably go a few days. Okay, but that's not the issue. The issue is God. God sustains us and feeds us as we, as we are tuned into Christ 24 hours of the day. There is a food that comes. This is what Brother Lawrence, who wrote Practice in the Presence, I'll bang on so much about this book, you'll get it, okay? You'll go buy it, okay? It's not very big. He never wrote it. They were just diaries that he wrote, and other people put this together. This is a caption from one of his books, or a book that was written about him for him. There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. My wife is very worried about me, I can add you. A continual conversation with God. Keep it under your breath, okay? Just in case there's people listening. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. You've got to do it to know what it really is. Yet I do not advise you to do it for that motive. Don't do it to experience it. It is not pleasure that we ought to seek in this exercise, but let us do it for the principle of love and because God would have us do it. He's available 24 hours a day. The Father, the Son and the Spirit entering into the spirit into the holiest of holies is being in constant relationship conversation fellowship worship and revelation with god Aaron staff now that was the third piece that was in the ark As I said, the high priest was the only person to enter into the Holy of Holies and once a year. And it fell to the tribe of Levi. Uh, Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Aaron was the high priest, his brother. And the other leaders of the tribe or the princes of the tribe, they said, we want our turn. We want to take turns in going into the holy place why why must it be the levites why can't we all 
And you know, Moses is so gracious. He says, right, we'll pray about this. It's not just a charismatic cop-out. It is a good answer sometimes. And so he says, right, bring your staffs. And on the staff, they would have their, the, the name of the tribe inscribed. And so he said, put them all in front of the tent of meeting, just outside of where the ark was. Lay them there, 12 of them for the 12 tribes. 13 possibly, there were two half tribes, weren't there? And so there's Aaron's rod there. He says, come back 24 hours, we'll see what God's done. They come back, there are all the sticks, dry, staffs, except Aaron's. It's budded, it's sprouted. There's, there's blossom on it and there's almond fruit. How could that come from a dead piece of wood? God said, that's my boy. He's my choice. Anyone arguing? No arguments. <laughs> Even that's a type of Christ. See, he takes the dead body of Christ and he lays it in the ground like the dead stick. And then he waits. And three days later, he comes out of the tomb. He comes alive just as God vindicated Aaron God vindicates Jesus Christ if Jesus didn't rise from the dead we'd all be dead in fact we wouldn't even be here curtains for everyone but because he was sinless and he died the perfect sacrificial death alone on the cross. God vindicated him and raised him from the dead. And because Christ is raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead as well. Hallelujah. We will be raised. Christ was the first fruits from the dead and we will follow. Do you believe in the resurrection? You go, I don't know how this is going to happen. What's that got to do with anything? Somehow, in some time in the future, if I've been in the ground or burned or whatever has happened to me on my body, God will move in sovereign power and bring every atom of my body and bring it into one place. And I will come to life. And you will see me and know me and I will see you and I will know you. Young, strong, healthy men and women of God raised from the dead in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead. The staff represented God's attestation his divine revelation <laughs> what makes a good preacher well you could say well he needs to keep me going for an hour and a half um, he's entertaining he makes me laugh and he makes me cry and I tell you what makes a great preacher 
someone who has been in the presence of God and God God speaks to them and there's attestation that they've met with a living God they said of Jesus no man no man talks like this man no man talks like this man what were they saying he was so smart no he had been in the presence of God a lot of preachers just get into books fine it's all right I understand that but at some point you've got to hear God speak I'm glad I've got to this grand old age and God speaks more now than he ever did maybe I didn't listen before probably too busy too busy trying to fill my head with stuff trying to find my way trying to work it all out trying to be smart trying to be something uh, I like old age because you don't care anymore you're not wearing that are you does it matter does it matter no man no man no man spake like this man and with authority he speaks what are the three items represent to us today those three objects that are in the in the ark the, the tablets of stone the eternal law of God is worship worship remember is not our singing thank God for all the singing we do but it's a total submission to God all of the time that's our worship I am living God for what you created me to be a perfect husband a perfect father a perfect a perfect a perfect to live to glorify you in my life this law of God it never changes or deviates or bends the law of God is sacred approaching God is a scary thing some people talk to God as though he was their mate I cringe when people say things like that or they say they're sitting on his lap uh, I understand where they're coming from I do get it but God is God you know God God is God not to be terrified of but to be honored and respected I shared with you last week when I saw God when I saw Jesus I looked into his face and I saw the effects of the Spirit but when it came to God I lay face down on the floor total surrender I looked through several passages in the scriptures of the people who came before God every case they fell on the floor they fell on the floor 
every case i just give you one revelation 117 john says when i saw him i fell at his feet as though i was dead daniel fell at his feet all the the prophets that saw him they fell at his feet as though he was they were dead in his sight do you know in in praise we run to god but in worship we fall in his presence because of who he is so we approach god with reverent awesome fear and that leads us to fellowship with god the golden jar of manna <laughs> without constant constant relationship with Jesus on a moment by moment basis we will dry up in our fellowship our worship will lead to our fellowship his life in you and your life in him my life is hid in Christ in him in him I live and I move and I have my being in him without him there is no life there is no being of me hmm. when you get into the holiest of holies it's just a black room 15 foot wide by 15 foot long by 15 foot high it's a cube where else is there a cube in the Bible do you remember do you remember the, the heavenly city coming down out of heaven it's a cube oh it's bigger than that it's a cube you think this is an enormous cube why is it this high well God's got a good reason for that we won't go there it's just something else so as you go into this room that's a cube God says just come the only thing in here is me when you talk to God you always ask him for something be honest do you always ask him for something see we can get so used to just oh here I am God can you fix this do this do this do this and do this we've done it so many times we were taught like children to do this just keep asking keep mum and dad safe look after my brother help the dog whatever whatever ask 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 it's got to stop because we go into the holiest of holies and we're there with God apparently if you go to see the Queen you don't talk Do you understand that they will be told this not that I've ever gone to see the Queen she talks to you apparently and you answer her can I suggest that when you go into the presence of God that you just shut up now and again and just sit yeah, it's very difficult because we're fidgety lot you just sit 
and you'll start thinking of things to say. Shut up. Shut up. It takes some practice, you see. It really does. In the blackness of the room, it's not really black. It is at first, until you see the Shekinah glory of God, the ball of fire that is between the angels above the mercy seat. And you see the presence and dwell in the presence of God. And Aaron's staff that budded out of worship and fellowship comes revelation. In that place, God speaks. You must sit long enough. I know you can hurry through life and the Holy Spirit drops things into your heart and mind and you act on those. I'm talking about getting on to the next phase, into the holiest of holies, where we say nothing and God speaks. He speaks. Have you ever wondered that verse in John when he says, whatever you ask for in my name, I'll give it to you. Do you know that verse? And you go, that's not true. <laughs> it is in the holiest of holies. That's where that verse comes into effect. It doesn't work outside of the holiest of holies. Only there, only there does it work. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life that is wonderful beyond compare. Beyond us, it seems, and yet it's not, because you call every one of us into your presence. Help us, Lord, to press on in, to lay hold of everything we possibly can and press in to gaze upon your beauty and receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the final lesson in our Tabernacle module. It has been quite the journey as we have gone through from the outer court to the inner court to the holy place and into the presence of God. Next week we will be starting a new module, Receiving God's Best, where you can sign up to be part of it in person with us at Cambridge Hall or you can study with us online. Just head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the details. Also, if you would like to give a donation to the ministry, you can do that at our website. We look forward to seeing you at our next module. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.